Nicholas, good evening. We're so happy to have you here. Good evening. Thanks for inviting me. Not a problem. You have been a author of several books before the dawn, The Faith Instinct, A Troublesome Inheritance, and you have been science editor at New York Times for six years from 1990 to 1996. How did you get started on this career and, and what are your interests? Um, well, my first job out of college was um, almost my first job was working for Nature in London on their new stuff. And then I moved over to Science, our American competitor in Washington, where I worked for 10 years. And then I left Science to join um, the New York Times as an editorial writer. So I wrote about, you know, political issues like environment, mm -hmm. defense, things like that. And then I became the science editor. Um, and then I, and while I was doing that, I started writing books mostly about recent human evolution and based on all the new information flooding out of the human genome sequence. What did you learn being a, a science writer about science itself? Well, I, I think of it in sort of two parts. There's <clears throat> there's the pursuit there's the pursuit of pure knowledge, um, mm -hmm. and that's the substance of science, and it's mostly what gets into the newspapers. But science is also a career. Um, it's a struggle for funding uh, mm -hmm. to beat out rivals, um, and this is a, a very important part of science that is less often seen. Um, I mean, it was first brought to light in Jim Watson's um, Double Helix. Um, uh, but it, it happens all the time. And I think it has a powerful shaping influence on how science is done. So I feel probably more attention should be paid to that side of science by science journalists. Do you think the public perception of how science works and the reality of how science might manifest itself ultimately with political influences, with financial influences. Do they differ? Is, is Could the public be a little too trusting when they hear scientific reports or hear scientific opinions in the news? Uh, yes, I, I think so. I think they probably should be more skeptical. Um, after all, the bread and butter of science journalists is you're reporting about the you know, the great things that science scientists are doing. You know, here's another advance in treating cancer, and uh, you know, often it's not quite as big an advance as <clears throat> as is made out because scientists and journalists have, <clears throat> excuse me, have a common interest in in making things sound really great when they may just merely be good, or even not good. So that, that's one thing has has to be kept in mind. Another is that with the movement of our academic community as a whole to the left, um, this has politicized and, in my view, corrupted mm -hmm. many normal uh, venues of scientific discourse. So the scientific journals can no longer be trusted in the same way as we trusted them before, because they too have unfortunately failed to resist this politicization. And if you just look at any of the editorials, you can see how suffused they have become with sort of academic political issues and with the agenda of the far left, which is extremely short-sighted of their editors, it seems to me, because 
if their if their editorials are to the far left, how can you trust the scientific papers they publish? Josh, after all, the whole reputation of the journals and of scientists rests on being objective. Mm -hmm. So either you can be objective or you can be political. You cannot be both. I've found something similar in reports on sociology and criminology, that there's influences on what is being reported and perhaps in the, the scientific studies themselves. Don't scientists have ethical considerations when it comes to being, as you said, objective and reporting the objective truth? Well, they do have those uh, concerns, but they also um, have careers to pursue. Mm -hmm. um, so generally, there's great temptation to do whatever it takes to get a paper into a prestigious journal so as to help with your next uh, grant. So if that means shading the truth, uh, sort of bending a little so as to please the likely referees or the editors, especially if you believe they have sort of political opinions one way or the other, then that's what you will do. I imagine if you're a climate scientist and you've decided that um, uh, the, the climate is not warming uh, and you try try getting that paper into nature. You have written a book, uh, you've written a book on COVID or SARS-CoV-2 as well. What about, what about this issue, SARS-CoV-2? piqued your interest? Well, I should say, I haven't written a book on the subject. There are many books, some of them very good. I've just written a series of articles. The okay. first one I wrote in May 21, which got a lot of attention, was based on an article I had read by a guy called Yuri Dagan, who's a, a, a biotech entrepreneur. And this just analyzed the, the SARS virus and sort of looked at every part of anatomy and sort of showed how you take it apart and put it together again. It was a very long um, a paper, about 10,000 words, somewhat technical, but I, uh, I just found this a, a revelation because it raised the possibility, though it did not endorse uh, it, that uh, the virus could have been engineered in a lab. So I sat back and waited for this remarkable page to be covered by the mainstream media, but no one said a word about it, which was extraordinary when you think of it. And here's the, the story of the decade, surely. And, and here's a, a, a serious article saying, this is how the virus might have been engineered. Surely that's worth bringing to your readers' attention, but apparently not. So after a while, I started trying to write articles myself um, covering the ground Yuri Dagan had opened up. And uh, um, I found my articles were turned down every place I offered them. So eventually in desperation, I thought, well, I'll self-publish this on medium.com, which by the way, was where Dagan's article appeared. Mm -hmm. uh, get it, write it out of my system, get back to the book I meant to be writing. Mm -hmm. um, so to my surprise, it got, uh, it got about a million page views on medium.com and the similar number in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which reprinted it verbatim a few days later. And this, I think, sort of opened up the, uh, according to some media, media analysts, it was this article that opened up the, brought the issue back into media attention. The, the possibility that the virus had been manufactured in a lab.
which which previously no one had deemed worth even discussing. Now at last the, the discussion started. Should, should we, is it properly termed SARS, SARS-CoV-2, COVID? What, what term do you prefer? Uh, its formal name is SARS-CoV-2, um, but you can abbreviate it to SARS-2. Okay. And this particular disease, I do recall when I first heard about it, it's in, it's in Wuhan, China, and in Wuhan, China, is a laboratory studying viruses. I mean, is it, is that correct? Uh, yes, the China's uh, principal laboratory for studying coronaviruses, which uh, the family SARS-2 belongs to, is in the Wuhan Institute of of of, Techno of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, just that fact right there I, seems to stand out. I I think to even lay people or anyone that has an interest in it that this very place happens to be a location where they have a, a facility studying viruses i mean i wouldn't that simple fact cause curiosity that it could have come from that location you would think it gives a pretty good basis for at least raising the question of whether the virus might have escaped from the lab uh, and yet there was such a sustained and successful campaign to suppress the lab leak hypothesis um, that the mainstream media and most of the scientific community um, for, for months just completely dismissed this out of hand, believing instead the, the opposing theory that <clears throat> the virus had leaped from some natural source to humans. I could say... As an example, Frankenstein's monster looks and acts quite a bit different from a regular person from fiction. So I would think a virus that was manufactured would look and act quite a bit different than one that was natural. Is there something about SARS-CoV-2 that that is very unusual just in the initial study of it that would make you think it is not a natural virus um yes there are several features of the virus <clears throat> that make it uh, uh look very much as if it's a, an artificial virus one that has been synthesized in a lab um so the first thing is it has a a, a, a tiny a small genetic element called the furin cleavage site mm -hmm. um, that is responsible for its enormous infectivity and it, the ease with which it infects human cells. Now this sort of leaps out to any virologist because none of the other virus members of SARS-2's um, family possess a furin cleavage site. So this is important because in nature, um, viruses can gain new genetic elements by swapping them with uh, members of their own family. And that's how normally you would expect SARS-2 to have acquired such an element but it cannot acquire any element that no member of its family possesses. Mm -hmm. And we now know of 870 members of, of the SARS-2 uh, viral family, they're called Sarbeco viruses, and not a single one other than SARS-2 has the furin cleavage type. So that is very anomalous and, and hard to explain 
in terms of a natural origin, very easy to explain in terms of a synthetic origin, not least because we can see in the scientific literature that virologists often talk about inserting SARS, inserting furin cleavage sites into their viruses to suit them up. The second feature, um, I'm not sure how technical to get here, is that if you look at the codons that specify the four amino acids in the furin cleavage site, mm -hmm. these codons are human preference type codons, not VAP preference codons. This is because each, each species has its own characteristic preference for the various codons you can use in the genetic code for specifying amino acids. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very indicative when you see a, a, a bat virus <clears throat> having human preference codons. And the easiest explanation is that if you were inserting the furin cleavage site, if you'd synthesized it in a lab, you would reach for a lab kit. And these lab kits being mostly used for medical purpose have human preference codons. So that is an easy explanation for where the human preference codons come from. Very hard to explain on the natural origin side. And, and the third thing, which I think is rather important and that has only recently come to light is that if you're going to synthesize one of these viruses, um, <clears throat> uh, they're, they're quite large viruses, 30,000 um, base pairs. Mm -hmm. So you want to break them down into sort of uh, even-sized chunks. Mm -hmm. and and uh, if you were going to make SARS-2, you would probably use, you'd break it into six chunks and synthesize the, the DNA in the lab and then join them all together. And mm -hmm. you'd use a characteristic a tool, uh, a restriction enzyme for doing that. Mm -hmm. So in, in 2022, three scientists predicted that mm -hmm. if SARS-2 had been made by the this usual technique, there should be uh, the sort of fingerprints in its genetic structure showing how it, it was breakable down into six pieces. And moreover, the, the breakpoints, which in nature occur randomly, should mm -hmm. be evenly spaced because mm -hmm. that's what a genetic engineer will do. Mm -hmm. So lo and behold, they found these six evenly spaced segments in SARS-2 mm -hmm. and said, well, this looks like it was a synthetic virus to us. Yeah. So this paper was poo-pooed by the by virologists um, who called it kindergarten molecular biology, mm -hmm. and it didn't get nearly the attention it deserved until last month um, some documents uh, uh, retrieved by an organization called the U.S. Right to Know under the Freedom of Information Act mm -hmm. found some of the planning um some of the planning documents for a big grant to be made to a grant application made to the Defense Department uh, in 2018. And, and the authors of this grant included Xi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So this, this uh, grant said we're going to synthesize viruses in six sections. Mm -hmm. and we're going to use this particular restriction enzyme exactly as had been predicted Mm -hmm. uh, by the authors of the 2022 paper. So this, this is pretty a pretty strong indication mm -hmm. that SARS-2 is a synthetic virus. Those are the, th in answer, a long answer to your question, those are the yeah. three characteristic parts of the SARS-2 
genetic structure that point to a synthetic origin. So an earlier paper stated that if this is manufactured, you will have the virus into these six different parts. There's something you could actually see. And now we have a recent document saying there was research to do that very same thing. Right. And now this this document is, is significant because it, it it relates to something called the defuse proposal, which is the most important sort of documentary evidence we have bearing on the origin of SARS-2. And this was a, a grant proposal made in 2018, uh, headed by a guy called Peter Dashak of the EcoHealth Alliance in New York. Okay. And he had two teams of scientists, one by Ralph Barrick in North Carolina, and one by uh, Zhengling Shi in uh, in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. And they, in this proposal that was leaked um, a, a, a couple of years ago, um, they said they were going to uh, uh, manipulate SARS-1 type viruses. SARS-1 is a, is a bat virus that caused an earlier epidemic, a, a, a brief one, a, a smallish one in 2002. Mm -hmm. So they were going to work with viruses related to SARS type 1. They were going to insert furin cleavage sites into them. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that, that meant that depending on their starting virus, they could have produced SARS-2 by this method. Mm -hmm. Now, this grant was turned down by DARPA and sort of sunk from view somewhat until the, the new batch of documents released last month, which are all the planning documents mm -hmm. for the defuse proposal. And it's from these planning documents uh, that we can see how very closely uh, the, the, their recipe for, for making viruses was to what we know from the structure of SARS-2. Now, if I can add just one more thing. Mm -hmm. When DARPA turned down that grant in 2018, possibly because they thought it was far too dangerous, um, that doesn't mean the experiments weren't done because uh, Barrick and she, although they were collaborating in this grant, they were also scientific rivals. Mm -hmm. So it's very likely that that she, well, well she, once she had seen that Barrick was halted because th there was no money there from DARPA, mm -hmm. she re realized that if she could get money from the Chinese government, she could recoup all her investment in mm -hmm. planning for this grant and race ahead of her rival Barrick. Mm -hmm. Now this is this fits very well with what we know actually happened because if she'd started making these viruses in 2018, she could have uh, she could have uh, uh, finished making them in 2019, mm -hmm. which, which would explain an otherwise totally unexplained fact, which is the timing of the epidemic. And this SARS-2 epidemic could have occurred any time in history if it really came from bats. But mm -hmm. no, it occurred in this very small window of time, probably mm -hmm. um, August, uh, September of 2019. And this matches precisely the timing of she carrying on with the with the defuse experiment with her own funds. And of course, it also matches the origin, the place of origin of the virus. 
it is surprising it was to me anyway i think it is to others that i didn't know before sars 2 that we now are in an era when scientists can change viruses significantly and can actually make them infective to people when they weren't previously and i believe that's called gain of function research can you talk about that a little bit uh, it, it is surprising but now gain of function research has been going on for about 10 years and it's been um, sponsored by the the national institutes of health and particularly by the, the national institute of allergy and infectious diseases which is one of the component institutes of nih which was headed by anthony fauci Mm -hmm. uh, and he and Collins, the, Francis Collins, the head of NIH, uh, uh, jointly wrote a letter, I think in 2014, in the Washington Post saying, yeah, this, this new research we can do is hazardous, but we think the benefits make, make it well worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And they proceeded to fund this kind of research. Now, there was qu quite vigorous op opposition from many scientists who said, this is crazy, this is dangerous. The benefits are not conceivably worth the enormous risks. But, but Fauci and Collins paid no attention to these objections. I think this was a very serious mistake mm -hmm. because they ignored a very good precedent that the scientists had set up much earlier when they first learned how to manipulate genes. They held a big conference. This is in 1975. It's called the Asilomar Conference. Mm -hmm. They said, here we have this new ability to to swap genes from one organism to another, uh, it could be dangerous. Um, so let's let's start out by setting very high safety standards. And if the research turns out to be not so dangerous as we fear, then we can progressively reduce uh, the, uh, the, the, the strictness of, of, the, of the lab security. And that's just what happened. So this was a very good role model for how to handle really dangerous research. And what Collins and Fauci should have done when gain-of-function research enhancing viruses first became possible, they should have held a, a, a worldwide scientific conference mm -hmm. of the very best experts from many disciplines, not just virology, and they should have figured out a safe way to approach this research. And if they had done that, then when this epidemic occurred, they could, and if it was caused by the escape of a virus, they could have said, we were acting on the best advice that we could get hold of. But they can't say that because they ignored all this outside, the, the outside critics. They went ahead in, and in a bureaucratic way, they sort of stifled most of the criticism and objections. And as part of this program, they funded this wildly dangerous research at the Wuhan Institute of, of Virology, which should never have been funded whether you know virus escaped or not. Mm -hmm. And that is why we find ourselves in a position where this dangerous research is still going on. And no one has no one has has come forward and said, look, one bad mistake is enough. Let's let's reassess. Because the, the scientific community has not yet come to grips with the fact that this virus may well have escaped from Wuhan. So they are, are not yet being forced to face the serious consequences. The gain of function is something that should not be done lightly. Yes, I feel the need to just go ahead and ask, does anyone know what's going on in the Wuhan laboratory currently? Is there any 
checks or anyone got a chance to go in there and see? Do we know what's happening in Wuhan now? Uh, no, we don't. Um, the WHO sent a sort of big scientific commission to look into the origin of COVID. They were completely stonewalled by the Chinese. They were not allowed to see anything. I, I don't know if they were even allowed to set foot in the building, but if they were, they weren't allowed to see anything that they wanted to see. Uh, the critical bit of information we need is what viruses were being worked on at the Wuhan Institute, because then we could see whether the precursors, of, the likely precursors or parent of SARS-2 were in that um, collection. Uh, um, but the Chinese have refused to uh, to sh show the lab notebooks or, or the viruses being worked on. And they, they closed down in, uh, I think, September 2019, a very important database of SARS-type viruses mm -hmm. that they had obtained and was open hitherto. So the Chinese have been totally uncooperative. So you have lack of cooperation from the Chinese from Wuhan. I had read a report of a modification of ventilation systems in the Wuhan laboratory around 2019, possibly suggesting either they felt that the ventilation systems were unsafe or that something had happened that they decided they needed to make these modifications. Have you heard similar reports? Uh, yes, I have. Um, they're, they're, that's very interesting sort of circumstantial evidence. I mean, it doesn't bring you nearer to the to sort of proving where the virus came from, but it, it, there are lots of pieces of, of evidence like that, that that sort of combine to make a quite impressive overall picture of a sort of large-scale government cover-up. Does it appear to you that there is not just disagreement on whether it was a lab leak or a natural origin, but there is active resistance in the scientific community, perhaps elsewhere, to the lab leak hypothesis. And if that's the case, why would that be? Uh, well, I think it's, it's, it's fairly clear there was a campaign um, directed by, by Fauci, by Collins, and by Jeremy Farrar in London, who's head of a big medical research organization to suppress the notion that the virus had escaped from the lab. And the reason I say that is that the first group of scientists who looked into the origin, headed by a guy called Christian Anderson, who was a grantee of Fauci, that little group sent an electrifying email to Fauci on the evening of January 30, 2020, saying, essentially, we think this virus is manufactured. It doesn't accord with we can't explain it in terms of evolution. In other words, we don't think this virus has a natural origin. So I think they thought Fauci might be very pleased with them for having found out the origin of this terrible epidemic. They learned Fauci wasn't at all pleased to have this answer. And he arranged a conference the very next day <clears throat> at which several scientists who were very much in favor of gain of function uh, attended, as well as Fauci, Collins, and Farrar. And uh, along with Christian Anderson and his and his team who decided this virus did not have a natural origin. And at this conference, although we don't have a transcript, <clears throat> it seems that the role of the pro-gain of function scientists was to sort of poke holes in, in the Anderson team's assumption. And at the same time, it seems it was made clear to Anderson that he'd got the wrong answer. Because within two days, without any 
without access to any new scientific information that we know of, he completely turned, changed his tune and started saying, well, lab origin is a conspiracy theory and here's all the reasons why it's wrong. So out of this, this, this teleconference grew two papers in the, in the scientific literature, which were enormously in, influential. One was in the uh, Lancet <clears throat> and the other was in uh, uh, Nature Medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was these two papers that essentially buried the lab leak um, hypothesis. And uh, it seems, you know, this was hardly, this was clearly by design. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clear that Farah, for example, sort of midwifed the paper in Nature and Medicine and sort of called all the shots on it. And and Anderson and his colleagues sort of you know, wrote it until everyone was happy that they had not done the best job they could to knock down the lab leak hypothesis. And and uh, and they were enormously successful for at least a year. So why did this happen? Okay, this is more a matter of, of speculation. I think the different players may have had different motives. Um, I think for Farah, he had very close connections with Chinese scientists, Chinese health officials, mm-hmm. and he, I think he wanted to assure his, you know, do a favor for his friends. Um, for for Fauci, Fauci realized very early on that he had funded the research at Wuhan. So imagine his dismay when Anderson tells him. That, he thinks the virus has escaped from the lab at Wuhan, and, and Fauci knows that well. He has funded this research, not directly, but via mm-hmm. the EcoHealth Alliance in New, in New York, which was his sort of cutout. Um, so Fauci had every reason to try and, and squelch the idea of lab leak for the virology community as a whole. Um, virologists, I think, were very afraid that there'd be enormous public backlash against them for having generated this virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if it was, the people at Wuhan were the main ones responsible, nonetheless, the Chinese scientists were sort of working in a framework, in a research framework established by American and European scientists. So in essence, they were, all, the virologists were all in it together. And I think they, they had every motive to try and uh, uh, forestall this sort of serious threat to their funding. Um, so that I think explains their motives. And then if you move to the media, somehow rather, and I think Fauci probably had a lot to do with this and I can't prove it. The, the issue from very early on became highly polarized. Yeah. Um, so if you're on the left of the political spectrum, you, you favored natural origin. Uh, if you're on the right, well, you didn't really care very much. But at least you were open to the idea of, mm-hmm. of of a lab leak, and because of that polarization, the mainstream press, which is largely um, to the left, has never seriously reported the evidence in favor of lab leak. Every time there's counter evidence in favor of natural origin, they put that on the front page. So the public, by and large, is very ill-informed on this issue, in my view. Do you know of any political leaders, heads of state, who have spoken openly and supported the lab leak hypothesis or at least its investigation? Um, the only political leader I, I've heard of who is open to the idea of lab leak um, is Michael Gove, who's a cabinet minister in um, Britain, who's who said words to the effect of 
um, this seems probable or, or this should be looked into. What are your thoughts? I do feel the need to ask this on the possibilities some have raised that SARS-2 was not simply an accidental leak, but was an intentional release. Is there any evidence to that effect? Uh, well, this is a very interesting idea, especially in the early days, because it's clear that these bat viruses uh, were first found in a cave in in, um, uh, in southern China, which is mm -hmm. um, hundreds of miles away from Wuhan, where the epidemic broke out. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is the link between these two places? Um, <clears throat> well, one obvious link is we know the Chinese, excuse me, we know the Chinese researchers in Wuhan made frequent trips to, to these uh, Yunnan caves to collect bat viruses, and they brought them back to their lab. Mm -hmm. So that could be uh, the link, some people suggested. The, 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 these were natural viruses brought back by mm -hmm. researchers, which then escaped. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting idea. However, when you look at the, 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 the many signs which we just discussed, uh, the point to the synthetic origin of the virus, then if then that sort of rules out that particular explanation. Mm -hmm. The viruses were brought back from Yunnan and Laos and other places because the Chinese had a vigorous virus collection program mm -hmm. and they were taken to Wuhan, but they were then experimented on and changed and altered. And it's these it's one of these altered viruses that has escaped. Mm -hmm. They were able to capture a real virus. They completed their alteration of it for these scientific reasons, and then more than likely, due to some kind of negligence, it was able to escape the laboratory, and now this altered virus is out in the public. It was, it's in the public among... Well, that's what seems to... Yeah. Yeah, that's what seems to have happened. We don't know that for sure, but it looks more and more like that is the, 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 the cause of the epidemic. Now, one one reason is that the Chinese were working with this virus in very low-level safety conditions. Uh, Xi Zhengli did most of our virus work in, uh, in, in uh, a type of lab called BSL-2. There, there are four levels of safety uh, mm -hmm. for these biological labs, and BSL-2 is very low-level. You know, basically, it's a slap a warning sign on the door and don't suck up liquids in the pipette. That, that, that's more or less it. None of this uh, sort of spacesuit negative pressure type environment you see in a BSL-4 lab, which is the highest. Now, scientists don't like to work in BSL-4. It's very encumbered. It's very costly. It's cumbersome. Everything takes twice as long. So she did all her work in BSL-2. Now, that contrasts, although that was, although that was permitted by international regulations, it, it stands in sharp contrast to the practice in the US where the chief coronavirologist, Ralph Barrick, believed these viruses were seriously dangerous and he did all his work in BSL-3 type labs. So the, the Chinese were using the wrong safety conditions to work with this virus and it should be no surprise that the virus did indeed escape. I would think something like this would be at the highest level of safety all the time, as, as if it was as dangerous as nuclear material or something to that effect. If it can kill millions of people, I would think it would be at the highest safety precautions. Well, that's right. I mean, in the first place, you should never make such a virus. In the second place, you should, at the very least, do it in 
BSL-3, as Barak has done, I think, without any accidents so far, and if not, BSL-4. If we had access to all evidence, the Wuhan laboratory, everything from these different parts of the world, the United States, China, wherever, without restriction, what tests or analyses do you think should be conducted to determine the origin of CoV-2? Well, unfortunately, there's only one test to prove it, and that is to find the parent viruses from which it was derived. Mm -hmm. So the, the defuse um, proposal, assuming that she did go ahead of the unilaterally, the defuse proposal says they're going to um, uh, take a batch of SARS-1-type viruses, uh, and they're going to see which are best at infecting uh, human cells. And then they're going to... Um, uh, make a consensus sequence virus. So virologists often do this. It's a sort of cunning trick. You find out what are the best viruses that nature has produced, and you sort of combine the, the the top strengths of all the best viruses to give you a consensus sequence. So the defuse proposal says they're going to get this consensus sequence. They're going to make um, 10 or 15 um, viruses, as I recall, um, and they, uh, again, they're going to synthesize them with this sort of six-part mm -hmm. uh, method. Um, so the only way you can prove that that is how we got to SARS-2 is to find the parent viruses that she would have used to make her consensus sequence or to find one of the consensus sequence of viruses. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's the, that, that is the only sure proof and since i don't think we're going to get that in the foreseeable future you really have to ask if if we really need that final missing piece do mm -hmm. we not have enough evidence already from the from the defuse proposal from the actual structure of the virus to make a pretty strong case that sars-2 is a synthetic virus if so we don't need that last mm -hmm. missing piece if it became more widely accepted that the lab leak theory was accurate, what do you think would happen in terms of public policy? What changes would result from this information? Well, that's a very interesting um, uh, uh, question. I can only speculate. I think um, what should happen at the minimum is there should be a thorough review of gain of function experiments. Mm -hmm that the power to fund them should be uh, overseen, not by the NIH, which is as which has a conflict of interest. It should be overseen by some over, independent overseer mm -hmm. who, will, who will say we know what experiments are worth the risk of doing and what safety conditions should apply. So that, that's just a, a very minimum. And this should be done internationally. So everyone should have their same a hopefully uniform system of, of independent regulation of this extremely dangerous research. Then you have to ask about the role of the virology community, which not only has set up the framework for this gain of function research to go ahead essentially unregulated, but has then sort of circled the wagons and done every possible thing they can to deceive the public as to the possible origin of this virus. I think they are very much to blame. I think the public likes professional bodies to regulate themselves if they can do so responsibly. I think virologists have clearly failed 
to mm -hmm. take a responsible attitude to this research. And someone needs to bring the hammer down on them and say, you guys have not behaved like adults. Uh, we need to have close supervision of what you do. We don't care if it retards your precious research a bit. M most of what you were doing with gain of function was pretty useless anyway. Mm -hmm. The benefits you promised have not arrived. Uh, we're going to regulate this carefully or maybe stop it altogether. Uh, and, and your funding is going to go down. Mm -hmm. Why should we fund you to put us all at risk? Um, now, I think that kind of backlash, which should be completely justified, may also apply more widely to the scientific um, community as a whole. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this would be unfair because most, many other professions which are sort of developing you know, more dangerous tools um, by the minute because of the enormous power of molecular biology, Many other groups of scientists, if you look carefully at what they're doing, are behaving very responsible, responsibly. Um, for example, there's something called a gene drive, which has enormous capacity to um, uh, 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 el eliminate disease vectors, mm -hmm. but also enormous risks if the drive slips out of your control. So mm -hmm. the people doing gene drives have been very open. You can sort of read their discussions, their attempts to bring this to public attention to get public permission for everything. They, these scientists are paying very responsibly. So it would be a pity if the virologists um, bad behavior should should impede uh, research across the board. But that is a possibility. It all depends on how on, on how annoyed the, or outraged the public is at, at a small group of irresponsible scientists who allowed the death of 7 million people or more around the world. It sounds like the scientific community's reputation and those of the medical community and governments have been seriously harmed by this entire crisis. Well, I think they will be seriously harmed on the origin question. And of course, uh -huh. then there's now all kind of second guessing on the sort of vaccine mm -hmm. and masking issues. I'm not an expert on those. Um, I, I, I feel the vaccine authorities have a very difficult position because, and we should cut them some slack. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that, that on the one hand, you need to uh, present a confident front to the public saying, yes, you should be vaccinated. Uh, on the other hand, you usually don't have the absolute certainty you would like because most vaccines have side effects uh, down the road. You, know, you hope very minor side effects. Uh, they don't negate the enormous benefit the vaccines have. But mm -hmm. it's very hard to sort of say to the public, this vaccine is completely safe because really, although vaccines are much, much safer now than they used to be, mm -hmm. you can't really guarantee any vaccine is totally safe. So it's a very hard, uh, it's a hard line for a public health authority to walk. So it's very sort of distressing when, when Fauci tells us, for example, that this sort of separation rule, everyone should keep six feet apart, that, that this rule had no scientific basis that he could think of. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't behave like that if you're, if you're trying to keep the confidence of the public, you you need to you need to have so maintain a strong relationship with the data you have available and the best advice you're trying to give on the basis of that. So I think this whole process now of second guessing what was happening, although 
although the criticism I think is in many ways too virulent, nonetheless, it's an important exercise in self-examination and I hope it leads to sort of better mm -hmm. vaccine public health policies in the future. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So what are your hopes for the future? at this point that covers the, perhaps a little bit, but for you, what, what are your hopes for the future on this whole issue? Well, the, the origin issue, which is the thing I've studied most carefully, uh, you know, I do think we're, we're sort of pretty near certainty. We don't, have, we don't have the absolute proof that will be provided by knowing the parent viruses, but we've got something which is pretty good and pretty close to that. Mm -hmm. And I hope that especially with this sort of new batch of documents that um, was was released last month. So I hope as awareness of that spreads, people will begin to realize that, that lab leak is the most probable explanation for this epidemic and that they will then proceed to take some of the steps we've just discussed. Okay. Nicholas, I really appreciate you taking your time to talk to us about this this very important issue, I it, I learned some things about it. I learn new things all the time about SARS-2. I'm not really sure where it's headed in the future, but this is pretty pretty interesting information, especially this these recent developments in the last month. So I uh, appreciate your time, and I if you if we could have a chance, maybe there'll be future developments, and we could interview you in the future. Sure, I've enjoyed doing that. Thanks for your interest. Okay. Thank you, Nicholas. Have a good night. Same to you, Timothy.